Welcome to Amplified. We're the show that will help you take your message, whatever it may be, and get it out through social media, networking, and other marketing channels. Maybe even some that you've never thought of. Whether you're an organization, small or large business, or you just have the next positive message that's sure to go viral, you'll want to stay tuned this hour. Now, here's your host, Ken Rashawn. Welcome to Amplified, a very exciting show because we had our best show of the year so far with Peter, and he's back, and he's bringing some of his friends. So Friends of Peter is alive and well, and our intention is actually to bring some of the best minds, more like a Car- Dale Carnegie and Napoleon Hill working together to introduce the most intellectual people in the world to give you ideas, breakthroughs, hacks, and all the answers to actually create a better life that you'd love and more abundance and more balance. So, Peter, welcome back. Hey, Ken. Thank you. Great to be back. I really enjoyed having you on the show last time. And, uh, again, I've reflected so much on how Michael Schmidlin and and just going to events allowed me to meet you. So one thing, just for our audience's sake, is what caused you to create Friends of Peter? Uh, 2008, uh, a friend of mine had uh, committed suicide a week before uh, I had dinner with him. And uh, I asked myself, you know, what happened? This guy was at the top of what he did in his life and he's one of the best. And I didn't have a clue what happened. I realized we weren't really getting that into, into the types of conversations that people, people need, and especially when it comes to talking about life. And um, at the same time, I had uh, three friends of mine. One was a former CEO of Walmart. Another one was the guy that created Sam's Club, and another one was a former governor of Alaska. And we were talking about life, and we were talking about influence, and realizing that, you know, if we said to somebody, you're a friend, uh, it changed who they were. It changed the way people, you know, responded to them. It changed the opportunities for their businesses. And uh, and then I met a friend of mine is in, is in Houston, and uh, a phone call came in, and she was sitting across from me. And she shows me the name, and it was a friend of mine, and she had behind the, beside the name FOP. And I asked her afterwards, I said, what is FOP? And she said, Friends of Peter. And I said, what, what, do, what do you mean? She said, well, every time you give me a name, they're significant people, and every time they call me, I want to know that they're a friend of Peter so that I could pick up the phone and do whatever I need, they need in that moment. And I said, wow, that's powerful. And that's where this kind of conversation of we need to have something. And it just it meant to be just having a conversation, but it, what became was a weekly meeting every Saturday of just our friends talking about things that are really real for life. And before we introduce our first friend of Peter, um, where are some of the places that people could learn about Friends of Peter? What, what cities? Well, right now we, we have Denver and Austin. Austin is the home every, every, every Saturday. Actually, on the, uh, the 10th of, uh, of September, I'm sorry, 10th of February, uh, we'll have our 500th Friends of Peter in Austin. Uh, Denver's had one for about three years now, and it's usually once a month. Um, and then uh, we also had them, we've had separate ones around the country. Uh, university uh, called and asked if they could have a one-day Friends of Peter event uh, around a subject matter, being uh, getting leaders together talking about healthcare issues. And so we've had people use it in a name. Uh, of, of uh, where it represents real conversation at a high level, and uh, and whether we've had it that way, we've also had one in the in Kansas City. Well, actually, our first one in Kansas City, we had over 400 people. So we're trying to figure out how we do it without uh, with less people, and and, and it's kind of in line with the modern uh, the uh, 
kind of the way that we want to do it and get real and have everybody share. So we're still figuring things out, but we've got eight other uh, communities in the country that have asked for it. And one of them was Malcolm Gladwell. And it sounds like you're on the verge of the beginning of a tipping point or in process of a tipping point, because it's interesting. You're at 500 events coming up and you could literally by next year with Elliot being on the show and with the people actually organizing to duplicate this, this model, you could be at 5,000 by 2020. And that's a crazy number right now, but it's very conceivable because you've, you've proven it's a model that works. Um, you know, I, I can tell you, just in Austin, this last year, we've had over 3,000 people attend the Friends of Peter event, and every weekend's different. So that's what things that makes it very excited. It's not about just one. It's literally, it's, it's like it's being created just for that weekend, and the people that are there are the people that need it. And it's amazing to, to see how all of a sudden it, it is based on subject matter, whatever the right people are in the room. And, uh, you know, I've talked to Elliot about what we can do up in St. In St. Louis. And, um, and I, I'm so excited about this conversation. This is one of my, one of the people I respect most in the business life and, uh, in life. And, and, and uh, you'll understand why here in a few minutes. Well, we don't want to keep him listening. We want to bring him in to talk very soon. But I want to remind our audience, maybe some of the audiences listening today has not heard the first episode of the year, which you had a brilliant introduction from Michael Schmidlin. So I will just give the highlights of it. Peter Stropel has been called one of the world's greatest brain makers, the most connected man in America, and one of the most connected people in the world. And I am living proof that if I ask for something, Peter will send me a text. I am talking to the person that day, and they have uh, an immediate interest in knowing who I am because Peter made that connection. So without further ado, if you'd please introduce our first friend to Peter, Elliot. Uh, Elliot Frick and I met, uh, I'm going to say, about five years ago, and it was uh, uh, um, just, you know, my friends say, hey, look, at you you know somebody, and Elliot was that person. And uh, for the first time that I talked to him, I knew he was something special. He has a he's CEO of a company called The Big Wide Sky. It's a marketing agency out of St. Louis. Um, I've been blown away by the number of friends of mine that have used his services in the past. But on this day, I just wanted to get to know him. And uh, we ended up having a two-hour conversation. And uh, um, I was able to kind of, as we I do when I, I try to listen to people, I try to share with him a little bit about things that I think were unique about what I do, and one of those things was the home plate, and uh, I, I love the fact that he kind of grabbed it, but he's, he's taken it to a whole other level, and um, you know, I'll, I'll let him share a little bit more of what he's doing, but he's one of the smartest, most down-to-earth, and really, and I'm, I'm saying it's like you can, you know, he's too good-looking, so he has to be a life, but, but just an amazing human being, and you'll understand that here in a, in a few minutes. So. Well, welcome, Elliot. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm very honored to be on your show, Ken, and uh, I'm humbled by Peter's very kind uh, introduction. Um, and, and what I can say, too, is that uh, the, the, the feeling is you know, absolutely mutual. In fact, I was awed by Peter when I first met him, and uh, the, the, you know, his billing, his, the, the descriptions of who he, who he was seemed you know, somewhat dubious to me. I, I was like, how can someone, this sounds like snake oil or something, and it very quickly proved to be exactly what it claimed to be. He is, uh, he, you know, he cares in a way that is consistently useful. And, um, you know, I mean, I think it's valuable and important to care about uh, people. Uh, you know, obviously, this is, this is a 
fundamental component of the human experience that we need to care about one another. But uh, Peter, Peter's care uh, manifests as something that is consistently valuable uh, and, and helpful. And so, uh, you know, within the first conversation, which again, lasted two hours, and he, he used his home plate with me, uh, which is a very interesting um, tool that he, he created for helping him to understand someone, um, you know, in that first conversation, and it brought me to tears. He, he understood something very important about me, multiple things, but something in particular that was very important to me, and, uh, you know, articulated it to me in that conversation, and it just, it was so moving. Um, to, you know, I think and he does this a lot, Peter does this a lot, but I think that one of the things that uh, is, is deeply important um, uh, for trust is to, to be seen and to be known and uh, appreciated, recognized for what you think you are. And Peter has this incredible ability, this intuitive ability to, to get to that very quickly. And he did that with me, and um, I instantly wanted to be helpful to him, useful to him. It's a very powerful thing that, that Peter does. Well, I knew you and I would click immediately, although we haven't had a private conversation yet, because when Peter talked to me for the first time, we went only an hour and 45 minutes. So we had 15 minutes shy of the mark of what you were able to do. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the point is, he paid me the compliment that I had a similar experience to Elliot. So I was like, wow, this is the guy I need to meet, obviously. <laughs> and, and, you know, you have a 25-cent word, if not a $5 word in your LinkedIn uh, I guess it's, I have never even pronounced it, epistemology, is that right? Oh, yes, epistemology, yes. Okay, so that, I had to look it up, and I was so happy to see the study of knowledge. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's awesome. And you put that right in your specialty, so social media strategy, vision, brand strategy, design, sales, innovation, writing, and music composition, and of course, epistemology. So what happened in your childhood or when was this quest for knowledge so high that you would use a $5 word like that in LinkedIn? Well, so that's, that's a, that's a great question because and it, it, it helps me to sort of um, be a little bit more granular about why I appreciate Peter so much. Um, the, I, uh, I think that the time in my life where I met Peter was important for me. It, it sort of helped me to have a greater grasp on what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and Peter was an important part of that. Um, b- b- before that, I um, had a deep sort of sense that uh, I pursued knowledge in a way that was difficult for others to metabolize, that perhaps I was, uh, you know, um, sort of too uh, pedantic or something, um, not quite ready for prime time, uh, if you will, you know, like that just... Uh, the, the things that I cared about deeply were things that just a very small handful of people care about. And uh, give me examples. Someone, well, uh, you know, so for example, uh, I, I, you know, care deeply about the idea that, or well, about the question of how it is that we come to say that we know something and why that matters and uh, what it does in our lives and how the discussion of that kind of question. Um, not only how we know things, but uh, other questions like around metaphysics or ontology, like uh, what really is, um, you know, what is reality and why does that matter? Why does how we think about what reality is matter? 
uh, why does that matter? And, uh, you know, th- those kinds of questions are things that it's, you know, remarkably difficult to get most people to have a conversation about. Because so let's, let's take do. that. Can we take that one, for example, Elliot? Because um, sure. I think that's a beautiful, um, I guess, example of, of where your thinking is and how the audience can appreciate how important this is. So what is reality? How would, how would you address that? Well, right. Okay. So, so that you know, so that's ontology. Like, what is right, and uh, and and then why does that matter? So, uh, I, you know, it's always been important to me because it seems to me that all of the the choices that we make about everything as simple as how we treat our peers, uh, or or the choices we make in uh, how we use a system or design a system or whatever, that these things are all in part predicated on. They rest upon. Uh, decisions that we've made about how we think reality works, what we think reality is, even if we don't realize that we've made decisions about that, even if we never think of it in that way or know about the word ontology or, uh, you know, that we have certain assumptions that we have about how reality works and it affects all of the choices that we make. Um, and so uh, even at a very small level. And I think that, uh, you know, it's, I think that most Really, almost everyone can understand this, but that uh, it, it's something that is characterized generally or understood generally as something that you can't easily understand. And so, uh, you know, going back to Peter, meeting him and talking with him and his, you know, his success and his ability to get things done, and then, you know, all of that, which is awe-inspiring, and then for him to say to me, you're special, and you have value, um, was it, it, it shifted something in me and made me realize that I didn't merely need to play in some sort of rarefied space with a handful of people, that I could find ways to take what I knew about something as big as the question of what is reality and make it useful on a day-to-day basis. Um, so, Go ahead, Peter. Yeah. One of the things that was interesting about Elliot, there's a lot of people that are really smart. And a lot of times, it's just the lexicon. They just are saying things that sometimes you just, you don't connect with, or you, if you do, sometimes it's in a level that you don't want to be able to ask the question. What did you mean, right? And I remember a friend of mine said years ago, and it's one of the most powerful statements. He said, "He said, Peter, you look out the window, you see grass. I see chlorophyll. You know." And I realized mm-hmm. that the level of content of of, of the, I guess, just the smartness of people. You know, I've always been fascinated by people being able to put something in words that a two-year-old would understand, because that's what I needed in my life to be able to understand the world that I was in. Elliot's one of those people. He speaks in big words. He knows a lot more, but he can also put things in words that I understand, and he can and communicates it in that level. And that's what I love, because you don't see a lot of really, really smart marketing people at the level that I think he is, but also understand at a level that engineers and uh, economists and some of the smartest people in the business would understand that this is still value to them in regards to marketing, and they're all part of the story. And to just add into that, Elliot, I asked that question about what is reality. I was very interested in how you'd answer that, and it was a brilliant answer. And a lot of us don't take on that everything we are believing is programmed by our perception and the meaning we actually give it. And if you reprogram, you change meaning, all of a sudden you have a totally different reality. So absolutely brilliant answer. And I'm glad that's part of the conversation we're having right now. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm 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 genuinely and deeply uh, grat- gratified by the fact that there is a forum in which we can 
raise the question, what is reality, and uh, have it be useful, you know, to, to something like business. Because <laughs> it matters. It matters. It does. And when you actually understand that, you understand how to apply strategy to reality. You understand how to theorize and hypothesize how to manipulate reality to have a better reality. So this is right. absolutely insane brilliant. <laughs> okay, well, I, um, go ahead, Elliot. I was just going to say that I agree. And, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, it's, I have a friend, uh, a guy named David Wilson, David Carl Wilson, and he was, uh, I think he's the Dean Emeritus uh, of the Arts and Sciences School at Western University here in St. Louis. And uh, he has started a thing uh, recently, which uh, Peter, I think you would find very interesting as well, that he calls uh, the Philosopher King Program. And his idea is that philosophy was originally uh, developed specifically for the purpose of training leaders. And uh, his goal is to help CEOs to learn philosophy, because as he points out, uh, it, is, it is really crucial knowledge for leadership. So, uh, so questions like what is reality are not fanciful. They're not, uh, they're not navel-gazing. These things actually deeply matter to leaders. So true. I wanted to share with you, I don't know if you had an opportunity to listen to Peter's show uh, a couple weeks ago. It was a show in which he actually committed to something that a lot of people love him for his heart, but more, almost more importantly, they love him for the wisdom he embarks on people because that wisdom is applicable to having a better life. And so he's been asked, begged to do a book. And I asked him on the air, would you consider doing a book in 2018? And he said yes. So I think that the two of us could really help create a book that would really show the, the, the light of Peter. And then the other thing he said is a goal is that he wants to get married this year. So I thought it was really an amazing, amazing conversation because you know both those things are big life changers and they're actually heading towards what he deems the flow of life is that you're actually able to share but also to be your brilliance. I, I fully, fully uh, commend this effort. I, I am behind it 100%. I happen to be at the moment uh, coincidentally standing next to a very dear friend of mine who is also a friend of Peter, a guy named Jeremy Nowak. And uh, he uh, is one of the greatest writers that I know. And so I guess, you know, I, I might go ahead and, without his permission, commit us to uh, the task of helping Peter to get his book written this year. Um, because uh, well, the, I, I, I know Jeremy would love to, to help, uh, and, and he could be a great help. Well, one of the possibilities, and I, and I, I speak from a standpoint of we are still thinking of how this book is even going to happen, but... One part of the book is obviously Peter and his theories and the amazing work he did with you on the Be Humans project. The other part of it is the Friends of Peter and having you on the show is like a chapter of what a, a point he wants to make. So I think this is the coolest thing that we're starting at the beginning of the year. And at the end of the year, we have something that's produced out of conversations. I love it. I love it. And I, I think Peter must have a book. <laughs> well, posterity requires uh, Peter Stropel to be in it. Yes, and, and my, uh, my, my, I guess, leveraging point in the show was to have a conversation about your brilliance is a one-on-one -on -one time thing, except if you do webinars or think something goes viral. But when you have a book, the book travels many distances that you never have to 
worry about it. It's, it's just happening like a residual paycheck. And, mm-hmm. and so I think it's really cool that his knowledge will finally be able to spread. And people like you and me can say, this is one of my top 10 books that I want to re- recommend to you. And Peter's voice and his knowledge and their ability to actually have their life change is the result of a publication. So I think it's pretty cool. I agree. I agree. Well, so it's an interesting segue, if I can be so yeah, sort of presumptuous, but uh, uh, I've, I've actually been working uh, since, uh, since June on a book as well. Um, and, I was just uh, about to ask. I was just about to ask. Perfect segue. Yeah. Well, and, and I suspect that you, you know, are sort of curious about the, whole, the human concept and all that, and I wonder if I can't quickly sum all of this up because it's, uh, it's you know, very central to the, to the thesis of the book. Um, and so, uh, so, so to, to try to put it very succinctly, um, I, I think that, that, and I was just telling Peter this, I think that, that, that a preponderance of, of people, a, a large, you know, maybe a majority of people, uh, in, especially in the industrialized world, in the Western world, uh, have, have a deep sense uh, of, you know, impending collapse, that uh, everything is sort of, uh, you know, headed for a bad outcome. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, this is reflected in all kinds of measures, uh, you know, Gallup's trust, uh, polls that they do every year, uh, you know, it's just, it's worse than it's ever been since they've been paying attention to this. I mean, I think that Congress is in single digits now in terms of the level of trust that they engender. Um, and, and even institutions like religion, um, are under the 50% mark in terms of trust, um, you know, uh, one of the most sort of depressing numbers in there is uh, there's a question that they ask about uh, how careful can you be, or well, uh, how should you deal with other people? And the answer, uh, you can't be too careful, uh, now is the majority answer. Um, and so, you know, we, uh, we don't trust each other anymore, uh, you know, sort of partisan kinds of, uh, you know, uh, rhetoric have come to dominate uh, public conversations. Um, we, we just, we don't have a lot of faith in the cultural institutions that, uh, that keep, hold our society together. And so, so that's sort of the, the point of entry for me on this. And, um, what, what I, what I believe very, very strongly, uh, I'm, I'm a sort of fan of, uh, uh, future studies, this discipline that looks at, uh, how we understand the future. And, uh, w- one of the sort of, folks who have had a big influence on that domain is actually someone who is from another domain, Marshall McLuhan, who's media studies. Uh, but but uh, there's a quote that's attributed to him. It turns out it, it, he didn't say it. A friend of his said it about his work, so we'll just say Marshall said it. And it, it is that we shape our tools, and thereafter our tools shape us, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so what I believe is that, um, that we, are, we have reached sort of the end of a cycle that started about 600 years ago and was introduced at a deep cultural level by the, um, the, the spread of the mechanical clock. That the mechanical clock um, was the first sort of inexpensive, widely available, deeply mechan- mechanized tool uh, that entered human consciousness. Um, and we could use it to organize our lives in a way that uh, no other thing had allowed us to organize our lives previously. Uh, and then in addition to that, we had this example that we could look at every day of a complex machine uh, that worked and, um, you know, gave us a reliable understanding about our day-to-day 
life. And uh, so, so uh, I think what that did to us is, that, you know, in uh, per Marshall McLuhan's quote, "We shape our tools, and thereafter our tools shape us." That the clock started a process of reshaping humanity around the idea that everything that we see and understand is a machine. And basically everything that we've invented since then has been a permutation of that same machine concept. And that it is that idea, it is that paradigm, if you will, that has, is reaching an end point. And so what I, what I want to communicate in my book is that, uh, that it, we need not uh, sort of just assume that at an end of a paradigm like this that things will fall apart. Uh, I'm also a fan of a, of a philosopher and uh, a sort of theoretical psychologist guy named Ken Wilber. And he talks about the concept of development, which, uh, you know, in the, the whole area of psychology, theoretical psychology around developmental psychology, you know, the idea that, that people go through a developmental process. And uh, he, he has this really what I believe is a very interesting and important concept that he's introduced into that. He says that development is always transcendental, and inclusive. Um, and so something was said about Wilbur that I find interesting. It was a, another philosopher who said, modern thinkers, if they're going to ask questions about change, if they're going to think about the idea of change, they have really three models available to them. They have Aristotle, who basically said that change is impossible, right? Uh, that in order for something to change, something that already is must be in the process of becoming something else, and it can't do that because it already is something. Uh, or it has to come from nothing, and nothing can come from nothing because nothing is nothing. So Aristotle says change is impossible. Then you have Nietzsche, and Nietzsche says uh, in Zarathustra, Zarathustra says uh, progress is a hammer, smash the old law. And so the Nietzschean view of change is that it's the destruction of what came before. But Wilbur says that change is transcendental and inclusive. So we transcend what we currently understand but we bring what we currently understand with us. And so uh, what I hope for is that leaders in particular can see, and this is what I hope my book can do, is help leaders to see, to have some, some faith that we, we are not necessarily headed for a collapse and that it, what leaders do in this moment is deeply important, that if they can see the change for what it is and appreciate it, that they can also take the things that are valuable about what we have and bring them along and give them a new context in the new paradigm. Um, and that when, you know, the, the examples throughout history proliferate where leaders refuse to acknowledge or appreciate change. And so there was no one available to help take the things that were valuable about what preceded the change and give them a new life in the new world after the change. And so what I hope for from the book is to give leaders, uh, you know, sort of new eyes around this. And then to get to the human part, uh, I believe that what's changing, as I said, that, uh, you know, I believe that our basic understanding of the world is very machine-oriented. We're mechanical thinkers. Um, and there's been a lot of opposition to this, especially over the last 70 years, a lot of criticism. Postmodernism is, I think, a, g a general term to describe the, the criticism that's been levied against the machine. Uh, but we haven't really been offered a, 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 an alternative. And I believe what's coming is something that looks much more like biology, um, that our understanding of things like social capital theory um, and the ability to understand people's interactions with one another through the concept of trust and social capital and, and that uh, markets are really networks and businesses are really networks. You know, we'd like to think of them as top-down hierarchies that look mechanistic, 
Um, but while we like that, I mean, I think it was Drucker who said, uh, you know, that the informal networks inside of a business are far more powerful than the formal networks, and yet we have very little awareness of them. So what I believe is, and, and I believe Peter is a model of this, that the future looks something much more like an organic network, and that in, in order for us to have really deep insight into what the sort of transcendent future might be, we have to really pay attention to those kinds of models, you know, to how to... How does a forest work, you know? Uh, how, how do these kinds of organic systems work? And I think that there are important clues in, those, in, those, uh, in the insights that we can derive from observing those kinds of systems that we can apply in a deep way to how we do business. And I think Peter does it intuitively all the time. And so when we say be human, which we say in our business and, and our, uh, you know, the nonprofit that we created, Be Human Project, it's all about trying to sort of, if you will, recapitulate what it is that is great about human behavior into the systems that we use to, uh, to, to facilitate the collaboration between humans. And so that's sort of the end point of the book is, you know, this hopeful future in which we can have a much more human kind of way of understanding how business and, and the marketplace works. So in other words, you really haven't thought about this that much? Not at all. Uh, I just made all that up. (laughs) Yeah, that was all spontaneous. Do you you have a book already, Elliot? I do not. This will be my first. I I was telling Peter. I I, I knew uh, that, by the way. I knew that. It was two reasons. One, Google. And secondly, the way you talked about it being my book, not this book, my book. Right. Yes. Well, you know what? I think the problem is, is I kind of think of this, for better or for worse, as sort of a magnum opus. I have other books in mind that I would also like to write, but I have this notion I that I can't write those until I write this book. So. No, I totally got it. And uh, by the way, just uh, the way I feel after hearing that is you're cheating the world by holding this in. <laughs> You've got to publish this. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's, it's so life-changing. And what you just said, I could re-listen to and re-listen to and read and read and read and actually really be with it. It's awesome. And so uh, I would look at I will send you, as soon as we are done with the show, I'm going to send you uh, the manuscript of what I have so far. It's about halfway done. Okay. Um, and, and what I'd and like to I'd offer love you, your feedback. I'd like to offer you on the show, is if you are self-publishing, please let me be your partner. If you're going to pick up this amazing big publisher, obviously go for it. I'll support you any way I can. But I've published about 70 books, and what you're speaking of right now is, is having me drool. I, I just cannot thank Peter enough for bringing you on as the first friend of Peter, and the fact that your content technically, if you allow it, will show up in two places. You're my book, and also in Peter's first book that comes out this year. Well, thank, thank you. That's very kind, and, and as, I, as, I, as I think anybody who knows Peter knows, uh, gosh, it's, it's just... It couldn't be a greater honor than to help him to get his ideas out there and to be a part of that and to be connected to those ideas. So I'm fully on board. Well, I have you to thank for my first show of the year being one of my favorite shows ever. And I've done over 120 shows on Voice America. And I, I, I pay this compliment to you because of your, your brilliance of putting the Be Human Project on YouTube. And although the views are not where you want it, Peter wants or I want it to be, the content is absolutely insane, phenomenal. And I had the best time. In fact, the one hour went by like in six minutes because I was able to use so much of the 
the ideas I got, the questions I got from watching the YouTube videos. So you did an absolutely brilliant job with the Be Human Project. So I want to ask a question that maybe the audience is thinking, like, how does a guy named Elliot get built? Like, what happened that you became this quest of knowledge? What did you read? Who did you meet? I mean, your brain is insane. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Uh, I, gosh, I, I think that more than anything, uh, I have, uh, I have the, the sort of passion that I do and um, interest that I do uh, largely because I um, have had experiences with, I, I, I'm, it's, I think, built naturally, neurologically predisposed, if you will, to, to understand and appreciate systems. And so, you know, from my teenage years, I, you know, of course, sort of being aware of the systems around me and the, the ones to which I had some fealty or, you know, some responsibility or uh, requirements um, and, and uh, found myself, you know, very sort of disappointed by uh, the, the, uh, the effect of those systems. And, and, and while, you know, uh, I, I don't want to you know, sort of stand on the shoulder of giants here and be, you know, sort of uh, blithe about that, but I think that, you know, I think that system, the systems that we have in our world and we use in business, we use in education and other, uh, other domains of, of human, you know, sort of pursuit are, are great, wonderful, you know, that they, they represent a profound improvement on what preceded them, but, that, but nothing is perfect. And there's always this, you know, potential to, to find new ways to understand things. And so I was very moved from, from my teenage years to see the systems around me as, uh, you know, uh, a, a playground or a, a canvas upon which to, to attempt to, you know, find find better better approaches. Uh, I, I talk a lot about my father, who I, I think the world. I'm very fortunate to have. Uh, both of my parents are amazing people, and and my father, you know, is a, a very successful business guy. And uh, you know, I saw, especially you know, many years ago, he was sort of earlier in his career, uh, him being thwarted by. You know, just sort of bad behavior of other leaders and uh, sort of the system colluding with bad leaders to help them to do bad things, you know. And my father just, you know, is a very virtuous person, a very high integrity person. And it was painful for me to see him in pain because he was trying to do what he believed was right and was thwarted by a combination of the system and some bad actor who was able to game that system and use it to create you know, sort of uh, outcomes that were good for that person, but not for anyone else. And so that, that's, I think, the, the sort of origin for me, or one of the most important origins for me, of my desire to try to, to find ways to improve the systems that we use to allow people to work together. Um, and then when I, oh gosh, I guess I was probably in my late teens, uh, I started really getting deeply interested in philosophy because I figured if I'm going to deal with systems, I need to get to the core of the issue. I need to find out what is at the bottom of all of this. You know, what is the antecedent of all of these things? You know, you can't just sort of rearrange the deck chairs and, and get a better outcome. And so uh, I just started you know, studying that stuff, and I, I studied it in, in college. I used to joke, you know, because I, I majored in music and philosophy, and I used to joke that I was apparently determined to never be employed. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's actually served me well, especially, like I say, meeting people, uh, Peter was really valuable to me because I started to see that, you know, hey, it's not, it's not, it's not 
um, outside of the realm of what is useful to business for me to think about these things in the way that I do at a philosophical level. Um, and, and I really started much more in earnest about five years ago uh, trying to take these ideas that were more abstract and austere and, and just sort of in uh, sort of head space and turn them into practical, useful things that anyone can get their head around and anyone can do something with. Uh, so I don't know. I think that's the best sort of succinct description I can give of how I became uh, this sort of strange combination of philosopher and, and business person. Well, who are you reading now? Who are you following? Who impresses right now. you as? Yeah, right now. Uh, well, okay, so so right now I'm kind of in a uh, a deep uh, sort of dive on a bunch of different people. Uh, some of them because I have an axe to grind with them, and some of them because I think they're amazing. Uh, one is a guy named Stuart Kaufman, um, and this may not seem apropos to business, but I believe it really is. He's a he's a physician who has. Uh, become very deeply interested in um, you know, deep philosophical questions around philosophy of science. Uh, and he points out that in biology, there are these things that happen that defy the conventional sort of mechanical uh, philosophical worldview, if you will, um, you know, the, the sort of materialist worldview. Um, you know, he points out that uh, biology, especially in the context of evolution, does stuff that uh, defies, for example, causality. Um, and that's very interesting to me because uh, the, the sort of, uh, I guess, Pythagorean dream, as you might call it, of reducing everything to math, that everything in the world, everything we experience can be described in a mathematical equation, is something that is really very much disrupted by what the biosphere does. Um, uh, and he gives the example, for uh, you know, of uh, uh, the lung fish, right? So this is a fish that has a, a lung, you know, and it can sort of respirate. Well, and, and most, uh, you know, sort of evolutionary biologists believe that this was an outcropping from, uh, or, I'm sorry, I mean, I mean, it was actually the, uh, the, the swim bladder, which is in a lot of bony fish. It's, it's, a, it's a bladder that allows fish to remain buoyant, uh, neutrally buoyant in the water column. So if a fish wants to sort of stay where it is in terms of up and down in the, in the water, it fills this sack with more or less air so that it stays where it wants to be. And generally, evolutionary biologists believe this came from the lung of the lungfish, right? Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, this, this, the swim bladder is the place where potentially a new species of bacteria can evolve. But the lung of the lungfish, which preceded the swim bladder, um, this process of going from lung to bladder is not, is not a, the direct cause of this new... Um, this new um, um, you know, bacterium that might develop. It, it is, it's a requirement of it. it. They're dependent upon one another, but it's not causal, right? And in, in the sort of traditional mechanical view of the world, uh, of reality, um, there would have to be an efficient cause. It's called causal closure. It's a principle that's deeply, deeply important to the mechanical view of the world. And without it, it calls into question that whole mechanical view, like maybe everything is a mechanical. And you see these same kinds of things that happen in the economy, you know, with, with innovation and so forth. And he talks about a concept called the adjacent possible. And it's sort of something you can think about like uh, if everything we know is like an island in the ocean, and the ocean represents everything we don't know, 
that the adjacent possible is the water immediately surrounding the, the shoreline of the, of the island of what we know, right? And it is in that space that new things can be discovered, right? So it's not that there is this efficient cause or this, this sort of Aristotelian mechanical understanding that leads us to new ideas. It is sort of uh, um, something else. It's this, it's this sort of almost magical kind of thing that makes new things possible. And, and he, you know, uh, he really pokes some holes, uh, some important holes, I think, in the idea that everything is a machine. And so he's, I think, a very important thinker. On the other side, the, the, the people that I'm reading that I have sort of an axe to grind with, because I've been reading all of the postmodernists uh, recently, uh, Foucault and Derrida and Leotard and Baudrillard and uh, Daman and Habermas. And, um, these folks, I think, have a very important criticism of the machine. Um, they say that the basis for it, philosophically, is deeply dubious, that we can't know for, in a real way, we can't know in an empirical way, uh, that our um, beliefs about how things operate are legitimate, that, that ultimately it all comes back to the, the sort of, you know, the, the questionable nature of our perception, that we can't be certain that we're getting all the facts, right? And, and so I appreciate that, and I think there's a legitimacy to that criticism, but what I think the postmodernists have done is to create a world in which uh, people believe that therefore there is no basis for truth, there is no basis for meaning, there's no basis for grand narratives. And I think that that is something that is just deeply dangerous to the hope of human progress. That, uh, that what makes humans so amazing, like, uh, you know, I believe the passage in Genesis about, you know, man was created in God's image, is, is the, 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 what animated the hand of the person who wrote that phrase was this idea that human beings are creators too. And that if our greatest thinkers are sort of, um, um, robbing us of a basis for imagining a future in which we can create new things, which I believe is what the postmodernists have done, uh, then we're in, we're in a bad place. Um, and so the, the place that I am in my book, the chapter that I'm working on right now, is meant to sort of refute uh, the, uh, the, the sort of philosophical uh, projections that are offered by the postmodern uh, critique, that the postmodern critique is useful as a criticism of the machine, but it's not useful as a way forward. We need to find something that is constructive, creative, that, that allows us to build, um, that our intellectuals have sort of left us in a bad place. So there you go. Those are the things I'm reading right now. Well, that's it. I mean, no, seriously, because of that answer being so good, uh, you had asked me if you could be my friend on Facebook, and I have 5,000 friends. Because that answer was so good, I'm going to remove one friend. I don't know who it is yet. <laughs> and I'm adding you as a friend. And that's like a compliment, and it's also a reward for the knowledge that you bring. Isn't that cool? Like all that, no, if that cool. answer had been much shorter, I don't know if I would have done it. But that answer was actually <laughs> just enough to qualify to be a friend of mine in the top 5,000 on Facebook. I am, I'm glad <laughs> I accomplished I pulled that off. Yeah, well, I have a question for you. This is a this is a like a, a I guess a sideline like uh, gut feel. Have you ever heard of Derek Alexander Mueller? I have not. Him? I'm I'm writing it down presently. Derek and Alexander Mueller, and his and and his YouTube channel is Verita, Veritasium, and it's the uh, it's the chemical of truth. Okay. Okay. And this guy is one of the most brilliant people I've heard on YouTube, and he only came to mind because you're one of the most brilliant people I've ever had on Amplified. So 
God bless you. Jeez. When you listen to this guy, you will call me back and thank me and you'll say, okay, I didn't get a whole lot from you, Ken, but damn, that was the best recommendation of a YouTube channel. So, well, I, I, thank you. Yeah, you're good. And, and by the way, I can't wait to talk to you after. Just watch um, Why You Want to Be Hated. I mean, this guy is unbelievable in how he drops it down like you do. I, I want to ask you about something before we kind of squeeze in Peter's home plate. Would that be fair? Mm-hmm. So we're going to go with a little shorter answer because we're getting closer to the end of the show. You but can you give a briefer answer to the goose in the bottle? Goose in the bottle. Oh, yeah, sure. So that's a, that's a, that's a Zen Cohen. And uh, the school of Zen, uh, the Japanese school is called Rinzai. The school of Zen, there's the two major schools of Zen, but the, the particular school of Zen that uses Cohen um, you know, believes that enlightenment happens in a sort of a very quick way, right? That, that you, you, something happens, you have this amazing experience, and suddenly you have an enlightenment that you didn't have before. The other school, Zazen, uh, is much more meditative, slow, sort of, um, you know, programmatic kind of process for reaching illumination. But the, the, the Rinzai school, they believe that, like, for example, koans, which are these little, very simple, you know, contained stories uh, that, that have at their heart a paradox are, are very valuable tools for creating, uh, you know, this sort of instantaneous illumination. In fact, uh, some of the Rinzai monks are known for sort of sneaking up behind a, a meditating student and whacking them in the back of the head with a bamboo pole. And then when they're laying there prostrate, uh, the, the, the monk will, you know, tell the, the student something very important and the student will never forget it, right? Because they're in this, you know, sort of imprinting state. You know, they just got whacked by a pole, right? So Zen Cohen's are sort of like that. They're a way of whacking you in the head. And there's one that I find very compelling. It's from the ninth century, I think, and it's this goose in the bottle story. And the basic story is that there's lots of different incarnations, but one of my favorites is this, this um, official, uh, a sort of governmental official, comes to a, a sort of somewhat eccentric monk, and he says to him, you know, tell me about this story about the, uh, the goose in the bottle. And he says, well, you know, the story is that uh, the master gave a student a bottle uh, with a full-grown goose in it. And, and the backstory here is that he had put an egg in the bottle and hashed a, go- a gosling in the bottle, fed it through the mouth of the bottle until it grew and filled the bottle. And the whole body of this goose was inside the bottle and just the head and neck were sticking out of the top. It's a, it's a sort of grotesque kind of image, right? And he hands this bottle with the goose in it over to the student. And he says, your task is to get the goose out of the bottle without killing the goose or breaking the bottle. And the student is just, you know, flabbergasted by this, doesn't know how to do this. And but eventually reaches this sort of illumination moment where they say, oh, you know, this is sort of the metaphor for myself, you know, that... And I, you know, my, my physical self and my, my certainty about what's going on in my life and so forth is the bottle. And my true self is transcendental, you know. And, and so, you know, he comes back to the monk and he says, hey, the goose is out. He points at himself. And the monk's like, yeah, you got it. You, yeah, you got it figured out. And so the wow. reason I use that as a metaphor is because I believe that we are collectively stuck in a bottle of machine thinking. And that much as we all know, that this is not still doing for us what we want it to do, we're deeply connected to it because there's some fear that if we get out of the bottle in some way, we're going to die. It's not going to, you know, we're reliant on the bottle to survive. Um, and so the, the, the challenge is seeing, again, that, you know, going back to Wilbur, that uh, development is both transcendental and inclusive. 
we can both transcend the bottle and bring it along with us. You neither have to break the bottle or kill the goose. You know, we can collectively as business leaders, uh, organizational leaders, governmental leaders, we can all get out of this machine bottle and get to a deeper understanding and still under, and still appreciate that the machine needs to still be there and it does what it does and we can value that. You know, we can, we make plate, a place for it in, in a new world. Um, but we gotta get out. We gotta get out of the bottle. And so that's, uh, that's why I use it as a metaphor. Okay, so let's go back to Peter for a second. And you interviewed him a lot. What what did you learn from him? And I want to bring him in to briefly explain home play because we don't have enough time to go full out. But I, I wanted you to share how it changed your life and what, what you learned from interviewing him. Uh, well, what I learned first and foremost from Peter is that, and, and it's something that I knew in the abstract, but I saw it finally in reality and realized that it was a real thing and that I could do, I could I could make it true in my life. And that is that trust is the basis for all human endeavor, you know? And, and that like, like no one else I have ever known, Peter uh, brokers trust, he engenders trust, he, uh, his, his entire uh, reputation and, uh, you know, sort of uh, process and way of doing what he does is deeply, deeply grounded in trust. And uh, to see it, in such a practical way, to see it working so amazingly uh, was, was, you know, very important to me. Um, it, it allowed me to take something that was merely an abstraction and start to live it on a regular basis. Well, Peter uh, said that one of the bigger moments working with you and interviewing with you was his explanation of home plate. So would you be okay with Peter explaining that briefly? Of course. Peter, you want to go ahead? Yeah, I just, by the way, I, I just got in, unfriended by you, Ken. Uh, I wonder what that was. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth it for Elliot. Yeah. Big words, get you places. Yeah, I get it. So, oh, boy. Oh, no, but so the, the, the basis of the home plate is that as somebody's sharing something with you, and understanding, if you're really listening, you should be able to describe them based on what they've said of how they've communicated the, the things that are important to them. And the home plate is effectively a box, four corners, the verse is passion and love. And, you know, if you can't describe when somebody shares, Elliot, you, you can see he loves it. He loves when it comes to learning. He loves the fact that you can take learning at every level and apply it to life. He applies it to, I love the fact that he's an intellectual in the world of marketing. Because most marketing people, I don't think, really are. And I don't think they can take things that matter and apply it back to somebody. Um, and, and so the, the passion and love that I have for him is the fact that he's taking very complex things and making them simple. But he cares about people at that level. that it, He knows it's important to them. The next corner is uniqueness and beauty. And he's a uniqueness. You know, you look at his background in regards to art and, uh, you know, and uh, literature and you know, and I love the fact he said that he didn't think he'd be able to get a job by doing this. But man, you, you can't go through that without understanding people that you, the story behind something is important. Well, that's a great marketing guy to be able to understand the key story and why it's important to him because he sees it in his own life. He's, he's edu- educated in it and helping people understand the story. The next thing is how do you make an impact? He created a company, Big Wide Sky that helps big companies, small companies, but the bottom line is help them understand their story and apply it to life, understanding that there is an intellectual base 
There's an energy to life that he understands. And the last corner is sustainability and legacy. People are always going to understand Elliot because he cares and he loves. He helps people understand them. And I can tell you, when I first went through the home plate with him, he applied it and he changed it in the way that he does in his own business. When he called me and said, Peter, you don't understand when I do this now and when the clients are telling us about their story and I come back and tell them, a la the home plate world, that I'm telling you who you are to me just based on what I've heard, they get tears in their eyes. And, and he said to me that I'm, I'm seeing my clients get tears because they've been heard for the first time. I realize yeah. we're on to something special. Yeah. yeah. Peter, going back to yeah. you. Tell us some of the things that uh, you learned from Elliot, because you've had a, a quite a relationship with him, and even we have a minute or two just to do this, so go ahead. I think the fact that a business is human, and I love the fact he's been able to in, in, in put that into there. They, they, he helps businesses become more human. You know, um, Again, the, the business, whoever started it, whatever the business is created to do, it's a human thing. It's meant to do something to help people not just businesses, and he's the guy that probably more than anybody, I think, in our country is helping people understand that that story that, again, if you can't talk to people as a business and make it more human and make them understand that this is something that's living and breathing and it is something that's going to be around for a long time and if it is going to create relationships, it's going to help you and your relationship with the company, with with your customers, become more human and the things that are making you probably the most significant thing to why you created business in the first place, why it matters to be uh, in business. And uh, and that's where, at the beginning, I, that's always been something I've laughed at. And But when he first asked me to be part of this, I was absolutely in love with the fact that we're helping countries, helping, I don't care whether it's a church or, or a business, a community, or a family become more human and understanding together when they really work together, they're actually representing something that's a very... Uh, very beautiful in relationship to life. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Elliot, let's uh, quickly say how people can follow you, connect with you, reach with you. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, of course, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, on social media. I'm on Twitter, Elliot Frick, 1L1T, uh, you know, uh, Instagram and Facebook and all that sort of thing. Uh, We're about to launch a, a new publishing platform that we call Lyft. And so it will be at lift.bigwidesky.com. And so we'll be posting, everybody here will be posting stuff about that. And I can say, I'm sorry, I got my phone kicked out there, but I can say very quickly that what we're really trying to do is, is help leaders to see that marketing and the, and the culture of your organization and the way that you work on your organizational development and the way that your organization sees the future are all deeply interrelated. And so we think of ourselves as not merely a marketing firm, but really a firm that is working on sort of uh, synthesizing how your organization understands itself and how it behaves and what that means for how it can talk to its audiences. So, um, so, so you know, you're asking what, what I'm doing. That's what it is. That's what I'm really trying to do. And that's so important because that's the authenticity of a brand and a human behind the brand. So, Elliot Frick, you have been amplified. You are a gorgeous soul. I'm so thankful to Peter Stropel for bringing you on. We're going to be in connection. As you know, I actually dropped Peter from my friend list on Facebook so I could be friends with you. So this is an amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Thank you. This is going to be a a legacy piece in multiple ways because it's going to show up in two books. So. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. 
hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Amplified. Be sure to join Ken Rashan again next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Now, go get your message heard.